And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Dan Bardell and welcome to the England Show podcast from The Athletic. And that is it. It's finally happened. England beat Germany at a major tournament. If you're an England fan, take a look around and drink it in. Where you are, who you're with. Because this is one of those landmark football moments that don't come around too often. The next is on Saturday to Rome where things could get better and better and better. So it's Wednesday, we're recording this podcast, it might be Thursday by the time you hear it but we're still bathing in the warm afterglow of that huge moment for England at Euro 2020, knocking out the old rivals Germany and setting up a quarter-final with Ukraine in Rome on Saturday. I'm joined by the Athletics' David Ornstein and also Jack Pitt-Brook who was at Wembley on Tuesday night. This podcast, we're going to answer some of your questions that you've sent to the guys on social media. We'll try and get through as many as we possibly can. Right, first from both of you, just wanted to get your feelings following this England team and an amazing night. Jack, you were at the game. Is it not tricky to separate yourself as, as a fan and a journalist in those kind of situations? Because emotions are obviously going to be running high in a game like that. Yeah, that's a good question. And it is quite tricky, yeah, because you're, you know, first and foremost, you're there to work and to see what's going on and write a report about it. And so watching the game, you you have to keep your journalistic hat on. At the same time, it is impossible not to feel emotional about it. Even though I was there in a professional capacity, I did find it you know, one of the most profound emotional experiences of my entire life. Uh, it, was, it was kind of everything that we'd been dreaming about and more, really, uh, to win a game like that and to play that well and to beat a team like Germany and to have it 
in Wembley, which wasn't full but felt full. And on top of all of that, to have that after an 18 months in which, you know, people around the world have been denied any form of communal experience or celebration. Uh, it was, yeah, it was difficult not to be moved. So, I, I, you know, I wasn't jumping around and cheering or hugging or anything like that. But I, at the same time, I did feel it, I did find it very moving. Yeah, David, I was quite emotional, sat on my sofa on my own. Is it one of the more, like, amazing and emotional occasions you've covered? Yeah, I think so. And okay. I'll slightly correct you there because I'm not really covering the match in the role that I do with The Athletic. My work is more so before and after. Um, so we're doing a lot of build-up in terms of what England are looking to do, opponents, uh, stories around the game itself, team news, that sort of thing. Um, and... It was an incredibly pressurised build-up because we had what we thought England were going to do. We had other domestic stories as well, like on the same day that we broke the news that Crystal Palace were set to appoint Patrick Vieira as their new manager. So there was great tension in where I was in my house and um, I had an opportunity to go to the game. But as I'm not match reporting like Jack, it, it, it would have been more in a in a fan capacity. But actually, it wasn't easy for me to get to the game for a number of reasons. And... In the end, I decided it was better work-wise, but also family-wise to watch it from home and have my kids with me. Because if I'd wanted to go in a social capacity, I wanted to take my eldest boy with me to really experience things that when you're a parent now, you're kind of doing it for them. And he's so into football. Excellent. And so we were all watching it together. We had a bit of an England party as a family, actually. When those goals went in and then you see the celebrations after and you spot a lot of people in terms of the England staff, the players who you've spent a lot of time around journalistically, interviewed, spent time with. I was basically in and around the camp throughout the 2018 World Cup in Repino, Russia, um, and got to know them all very well, backroom staff as well. And then you see this outpouring and such tension that's been in the nation around the pandemic, but also uh, dating back to for all the years of hurt. Also that team, the scrutiny, the stories that we've worked on around Gareth Southgate himself personally, and as an England manager, some of those players, a lot of criticism that have, has come their way. It, all of it kind of just bubbled up inside me. And I, I was really relieved that I'd put my bed my my work to bed so that I was able to kind of yeah. focus on on the match and for a, a period just indulge myself in that because I know how busy I'll be in the aftermath and then before the quarter final and yeah it was you, there were moments where it was lump in the throat stuff and I think the one that really got me was when Gareth Southgate said in in one of his post-match inter interviews to Kelly Summers on the BBC that he looked up at the big screen and saw David Seaman. And for the teammates that he played with in 1996, he can't change what happened that day. But England, the team that is managed by him now, have the opportunity to create more great moments for those who have been part of it historically, those who are part of it now for the fans. And they'll try and do that at Rome. And I just thought... It was a perfect day from an English perspective. Uh, I loved it. I did find it very emotional. But unfortunately, when you're in the industry we're in, you're kind of largely on autopilot and uh, you're very quickly back into the tunnel vision of, of doing your work and, and telling the stories around the event. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you got to do that really special. Like some of my earliest memories of, of watching England will be Euro 96 sat at home watching with my dad. So stuff like that's precious and it, it's memories that your family will remember forever. Jack, at the game, just talk to us a little bit before we go into the questions. Talk to us about the atmosphere. What was it like? 
Yeah, it was really something else. It was completely different from the atmosphere in the three group stage games. I mean, that much was obvious. Just being in London beforehand, you know, seeing how many England fans were out, you know, getting ready for the game, drinking around Baker Street and Marylebone and in central London. Lots of colleagues of mine who came down from Manchester said that the trains down to Euston were packed with England fans for the game. And so it really, London itself had that big match atmosphere and then the Metropolitan Line was rammed and Wembley Way was rammed in a way which it hasn't really been for two years, I suppose. It was just very, very different from what we've had before. If you walk along Wembley Way from Wembley Park Tube to the Tube Station, just to your right-hand side, just in front of Wembley Arena, thousands seemingly of England fans had gathered in the square there for a big kind of pre-game party, lots of singing and drinking and everything. And that it really did transform the mood. It just made it feel like a real game again. Inside the game, I thought the it looked pretty full. If somebody had told me there'd been seven, 60, 70, 80,000 fans there, I would have believed them. You couldn't see that many empty seats. During the game itself, there was this amazing relationship between the team and the fans in which they kind of each fed off, each provided and fed off energy from the other. Obviously, it was a nervous first 10 minutes, but then when England started to push up and get involved in the game, the crowd responded so well to the players. There were two, after about 15 minutes and again after about 20 minutes, Harry Maguire won two big tackles with Thomas Muller. Both of those times, the crowd roared as if we'd scored a goal. And that really did seem to fire England on. And one thing that I really liked about the crowd is that there have, I thought, a little bit in the group stages, there are moments when the crowd get a little bit nervous if England haven't scored or if, say, Stones and Stones and another defender would pass the ball between themselves, they'd get a bit antsy, they'd want England to get it forward. And there was none of that at all yesterday. The England crowd, I thought, were very patient. They didn't get on the players' backs. They didn't get anxious about the fact that England hadn't scored a goal until, what, 15-20 minutes left and that seemed to give England renewed confidence through the second half so and then of course the celebration of the goals I've literally never seen anything like that in my life you know I've, I've been to plenty of big games as as a fan and as a journalist and I've never seen celebrations like the celebrations behind for those two goals so we were we were in the east press box so the south stand was just to our left which was which is the loudest and most uh, kind of excitable section of England fans and when the goals went in, it was just this kind of swarming sea of fans. And there was this big blue tarpaulin over the the bottom few rows just in front of the pitch, which is, you know, meant to uh, provide a bit of extra space between the front row of the fans and the hoardings. And there were fans, like, th- throwing themselves onto that and jump, clambering all over one another. It was mayhem. I'm, I gen- I've literally never seen anything like it. And it was a real privilege to be able to be part of that. What I quite like is that it was or felt like a really seminal moment for the nation. And that's largely because of the opposition on that day, I think. There's been a lot of bickering on social media and, frankly, some disgraceful treatment of Gareth Southgate. If you were to just say, look at Twitter around some of his selections for the squad, for matches, some of the tactics, the Jack Grealish debate and and so on. I I don't actually think that's been replicated throughout the public. I, I think there's been great excitement around this tournament. I think there has been a long wait because of it being delayed by a year and, um, among many I speak to in real life, uh, the noise that I hear in the pub opposite my house. Um, it's like nothing you hear for club matches, even though most people around where I live support the same team. 
international tournaments normally do great things to nations, but now even more so because it's largely a home tournament because we've been waiting so long because of this talented crop. And 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 to be fair to the social media reaction, that's largely where the frustration is born out of because we have such tools at our disposal for the first time in so many years and everyone wants to see that maximized and that's why steve holland gareth southgate's assistant said you know this isn't football manager we can't just pick them all and and put them up front and i mean i'm sure we'll go on to speak about gareth southgate because his resilience to public pressure is one of the features of this tournament but we've grown up with this england team uh, right from childhood we haven't been through the hurt of some of the older generations most of us experience euro 96 uh, as young people but then 90 into Euro 2000, 2002 World Cup and so on. There was always a lot of controversy around the team. There was always incidents. There was always uh, some negativity and and even a fractured fan base, a lot of tribalism, even that spilling into the squad somewhat with cliques based on clubs that some of the players have talked about it in more recent years from those generations. But now something really special does seem within touching distance. And I sense that with Germany being the last 16 at Wembley on a nice day, um, good kickoff time, lots of kids involved, my kids with me and, and able to really ask questions and sample it. It was beautiful and it was really the perfect story. And now England go on to the quarterfinal with out conceding a goal in the entire tournament. And and if they play to form, then they've got a really good opportunity to make it to the final. Yeah, it's a great feeling when the whole nation almost feels on the same page and the fans and the, and the team seem as well. I think that's something really, really special. It's just great to see and long may it continue. Thanks ever so much for all the questions that you guys have sent in. We're going to try and rattle through some now and get the thoughts of Jack and David. We'll start with Andy Bastable. So he's saying, assuming it's a back four and Mason Mount returns, do you think there's a chance that Sancho gets the Ukraine match to play his way back into the side at the expense of Saka? Or will Southgate bring Foden back in? Saka looked quite leggy towards the end of the match and I can't see him starting. I mean, Jack, the options are, are incredible that, that Southgate has at his disposal. Even if he doesn't use Sancho, there's other players that could come in. But first question there, I guess, is... Do you think it will be the back four? My sense is that he will revert to the 4-2-3-1 system for Saturday uh, because I think that's probably a better system for trying to create chances against teams who are more likely to defend. Uh, it does raise interesting questions about personnel. I'm sure that Mount will come back in. You know, Southgate loves Mount. Whether or not he plays Saka, I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like Saka might have run himself into the ground in these last two games. Um, I can see why he might be tempted to maybe go for a Foden or Grealish player who's a little bit fresher to give England a bit of extra sharpness. I Frankly, I'd be surprised if it was Sancho, just because we've seen so yeah. strikingly little, little of Sancho in the Euros so far that I, it seems like he's further down the pecking order than some of the other candidates for that position. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
This is the England Show from The Athletic. Keep up to date with all of our Euro 2020 podcasts and writing by following us at The Athletic UK. Yeah, Tom72 we've got here is also asking about systems and the three at the back, David. I guess there's an argument... To, to stick with the three at the back for, for a knock for the knockout phase, and you, you could also I don't know whether you whether you know this or a, a, a party to this information, but was it always the plan to to go to three at the back in the knockouts? Well, I think Gareth Southgate was trying to make sure he had an adaptable uh, formation system, players who could play in different formations, and that dates back to much earlier in his tenure, the 2018 World Cup when England did deplo- deploy three. Um, and, you know, I, Jack will remember exactly when the shifts have come. Um, and I think we've now got a manager and a, a set of players who who can take a horses for courses approach and they've shown that they can adapt pretty smoothly. Now, it wasn't all sweetness and light. You know, there were a, a string of through balls that cut England apart central midfield and central defence. And frankly, Thomas Muller should have equalised and, and we might have been having a very different conversation. I was speaking to somebody who works in, in re- football recruitment today at the top level and and he was saying that, that that was an accident waiting to happen. You know, there, there was a fundamental error there and he was staggered that Germany didn't manage to take advantage of it. It was only their own profligacy and a bit of confusion about who was playing in, in what role within that a sense forward position for Germany and a lack of incisiveness up, up, up front that sort of saved England as well as some really good defending. Um, I don't know because, you know, Ukraine have played uh, different formations of their own and shown their own flexibility, whether he wants to match up like he did against Germany or whether he wants to revert to going with, you know, what England want to do. And I suspect he'll go with what England want to do with with the four, uh, which served them well in, until this point. I don't, I don't think he would go wrong either way. This is a match that, all being well, England should get a, a positive result out of. They're a better team than Ukraine. Um, and he, he's got the personnel to do so. Um, I don't think there'll be any major personnel shifts within that back three to to five, depending on what it is, um, or four. Um, maybe Kieran Trippier coming out. You know, he seems to pick up at a bit, bit of an injury. D- didn't have his finest game, although he's, a, he's dependable and, and Gareth Southgate trusts him. And the others within there, you've got um, Harry Maguire, who's going to start either way. John Stone's going to start either way. Uh, be hard-pressed not to start Carl Walker and, and Luke mm-hmm. Shaw. So so there you go. Um, the holding central midfield pretty much picks itself. Um, there's no reason to take either of them out. And Jordan Henderson's clearly still coming back to fitness and and plays an important role. Um, I definitely do not see Sancho uh, coming into the side. Um, not my preference. I'm just trying to say what I think Gareth Southgate will do. Um, I, I think even Marcus Rashford is ahead of him in that pecking order. And and then, you know, on that side anyway, it's going to be Raheem Sterling from the start. Um, so, yeah, the, the Saka question is quite interesting. Obviously, you know, he's played two games in a row and w- was taken off. Um, I don't think you'd go wrong if you do bring Phil Foden back in and, and it's going to be a game that possession will be more important potentially than it was against Germany with England sure to see more of the ball and Foden is perhaps better suited to that. I don't think the need for Saka 
tracking back is quite as strong against Ukraine as it was against Germany. Um, I don't think Grealish will come into the starting lineup either. England have got to this point pretty successfully, and 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 Jack Grealish has been included in that as as a substitute and and had a great impact. And many of us would love to see him start. Um, Southgate will have his own preference on that, but I don't know if he's done enough, you know, and he came into the tournament nursing sort of fitness concerns as well to start the match ahead of the existing options when there doesn't seem an overwhelming reason to change the sort of way he's been doing stuff. And then you've got Harry Kane up top. So I haven't really answered your question, but uh, but I think, I think we're going to see very similar, even if the formation tweaks slightly to what we've seen until this point. Yeah, Jack, we've got Grant Schmidt here. He's asking about Grealish and he's saying, seeing the impact of Grealish as a sub, why does everyone think that that means he should now be a starter? Because impact subs are, are okay. And I guess as the 12th man yesterday, he was involved in both goals. So Southgate's plan, it was flawless really, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was perfect. I mean, this is a, a, a topic that we've been writing and talking, and talking about for the last few weeks. It's not, you know, those of us who think that Grealish shouldn't have started the Germany game, it's not that we don't think Grealish is good. I love Grealish. I love watching him. I think he's an amazing player and a great guy. And I really, yeah, I, I value him a lot. But I think Southgate was right to use him as an impact sub yesterday. You know, it was the work, the defensive work that Sterling and Saka did was so important in that 3-4-3. Uh, the, the system gave England a foothold in the game, which is what they needed. It allowed them, after the first 10 minutes, to really tighten up and then pin Germany back, wear them out. And then ev- and then eventually the master plan was bring on Grealish when Germany are getting tired. And that's exactly what Southgate did. And pretty much with his first two involvements in the game, Grealish was involved in the move which led to Sterling's goal and then put in the cross for Kane's goal. So I thought it was a, it was very, very well handled from Southgate. And just that said, just because Grealish was very good yesterday, it doesn't that in itself is not an argument that he should have started. Because if Grealish had been playing from the start instead of Saka, for example, maybe England wouldn't have had the start that they did. So I think it was perfectly managed. I'm not I'm not even against starting Grealish against Ukraine. But I, uh, I think that for a big game like this, he is ultimately better off the bench. Yeah, Art De Roche has done, done a great piece actually about the use of, of Saka and then bringing Grealish on and how that affected the game yesterday. It's really worth a read. I mean, there's plenty of England content on The Athletic after the game. An amazing amount of content. I can't believe how quickly it's all come out. And Art is, is definitely up there as a great read. So if you haven't checked that out yet, and if you're not already a subscriber, there's a great offer going on at the moment. If you go to theathletic.com slash England pod, you can sign up for just a pound a month. David, do you go along with that, with, with Grealish? Yeah, I love Grealish. Absolutely love him. He's a he's a maverick. He's a unique player, the like of which England haven't seen for a long time. And um, he can do things that we really need him to do if we're going to progress towards the final and, and maybe even challenge for the trophy. I don't think he's an essential starter in the mind of Southgate. I'm not getting into whether I think he should or not, because I think either way he he offers so much, but I don't think Gareth Southgate has any real major compelling reason to, to start him in his mind. His dependable lieutenants, his soldiers, which Raheem Sterling and, you know, you've got Harry Kane and, and then obviously the younger option to the other side have, have not let him down. Phil Foden, in those first two games, he, you know, it wasn't maybe as spectacular. He hit the post, of course, against uh, the, the the Croatia in the first game. 
but he he's a generational talent in his own right. But Kaio Saka is going to the stars. He's magnificent. We mustn't forget that he's still 19. And, you know, some of the treatment he gets from, from opponents, I don't know how his body stands up to it. When he came off as substitute, I, I do think there is, is the possibility that that place is up for grabs. But I do think that Foden will come back in as, as the priority choice. You know, equally, Marcus Rashford, who could play in the wide areas, he, he's been nursing injury issues and, and doesn't seem that he's part of the starting thinking for this tournament, sadly, because uh, he hasn't had much tournament starts in in his career Marcus Rashford which is a, a bit of an anomaly yeah I mean Jack Grealish I, I think would electrify supporters if he if he started and and I know Dan you would love that and so many of the public would too you speak to people in the game and they have a slightly different view to this groundswell of public opinion um one of the facets of of Jack's game is perhaps that he doesn't track back with the intensity of, of perhaps a Raheem Sterling and and Mostert Bakayo Saka who's been a defender in his young career already so it's it's maybe not as natural to him although if you look at the ground covered you can't say that Jack Grealish doesn't put a shift in people in football coaches also sort of point out that he can slow attacks up a little bit by checking back which is part of his creative brilliance because he then looks for the pass. I mean, he didn't slow up the goal that that he assisted for Harry Kane, um, but quite often he checks back. It it very regularly draws fouls and that gives England an attacking option that they might not have had if he he didn't play in such a way. But I think the way that Gareth Southgate needs the two support players to Harry Kane to bomb on and get beyond him and use their pace. And he pointed that out straight after the match in his post-match interviews. It says to me that Jack Grealish isn't part of his thinking for the way that he wants to set up from the start of matches. However, he is very key to his thinking in the way that England can offer something different, turn matches, give nightmares to their opponents. And I always think, why change a winning formula? And that maybe is what Gareth Southgate is thinking now. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was a super sub for Manchester United. The goals he scored, many people now, I think, would be baying for a player like that to start, especially if the players that were on the pitch before them were not producing to that level. But these things are all deeply analysed and and they go th- you know through the, the data and the, and the performance metrics and everything like that to an extent that we don't and and we're not saying that he's going to get it right every time by his own admission Gareth Southgate said if his team selection was wrong and it didn't go well yesterday he would have been dead like he really would have been crucified by the public and sections of of the media and England would have been out of the tournament and there would have been questions about his job and that's why he's paid the big bucks and and uh, I think why what we are seeing in in recent days is that for all of our debate Gareth Southgate knows better than us. Exactly what I was about to say. I mean, I was on Twitter yesterday when, when obviously it was the Athletic that revealed the, the team that, that it was going to be. And I was surprised to see Saka in and not Grealish and kind of felt like Grealish was held to a different standard to perhaps other players. But it turns out Gareth Southgate knows more about football than me. And he knows how these things work and he's got it absolutely spot on. And you can't argue with it now. And the other thing, I guess, is, is that you have different players for different games. It could well be that he thinks against Ukraine. Jack Grealish is the man to start and he, and he ends up starting. We've got so many options. There's so many players to choose from, so many threats. It's a really, really positive position to be in and I'm, I'm really excited for how this tournament's going to unfold. Can I just put one to you as somebody that watches Villa so much, Dan? Yeah. Do you think Jack looks a bit sad? You know, I, I, did, I wasn't sure in when he was... So the, the celebrations at the end and, and Gareth Southgate went up to him and, and there is 
I listened to his post-match interviews afterwards. He was very calm and and actually quite understated given what had just happened on the pitch compared to some of the other players. There's just something in me that sort of knows Grealish is desperate to start yeah. and have. I, he, he said when he was asked, "Do you like all this talk about you?" He said, "Yeah, I love it. I, I want it. It shows that you're doing something right." And just something in me is. There's so much background which, which Jack, um, which which Greg Evans wrote about on the Athletic. You should go and read that piece because there is a lot of history there, with England, Grealish, Southgate, under 21s, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I wonder if you know we're, we're. It doesn't really matter if England are winning, but if we're seeing like just this tiny bit of pent up frustration that Grealish just wants to be released from the start. Yeah, I think of at Villa, he's obviously the main man. He knows he's going to play every single game for Villa and that the team is built around him. So it must be quite difficult going from that and then going to an England environment and, and basically being on the bench and having other players around you that are probably more favoured because he's he's not used to that at all. I remember there was a game this season, he got taken off with about four minutes left. He looked like he wanted to kill Dean Smith just for, give, just for giving him four minutes rest. The, the guy just loves playing football, but... I think he's he's adapting and he's trying to adapt. I think he's he's trying to say the right things. He'll be desperate to play. But I actually think probably what he did yesterday, I don't think he probably realised straight away after the game what he'd actually done. He turned that game and the whole country loves yeah. him. And, and this is what he's absolutely been waiting for. I mean, he burst onto the scene at 19 in that Wembley semi-final against Liverpool in 2015, I think it was, you know. Mm-hmm. We all thought he'd play for England years ago, but he's here now. He's making the most of it and he'll absolutely be loving all the attention and he can be a big part, even if he is a sub, he can be a big part of England's success, I think. Right, we'll move on to Carl's question now. He says, we have to discuss Kane. He's a bit worried, Jack, by his his lack of touches and his involvement in the game. I guess the goal will will do him good. A goal goal will always do strikers good, but... Are you concerned by his lack of involvement in the build-up play and whatnot in general? A bit. I mean, it's hard to watch him over the course of these four games and say that you think he's playing well. I don't think he is playing well, to be honest. I thought he was better against the Czech Republic than he was against Scotland or Croatia. And then yesterday, certainly in the first half, I thought this is not, you know, this is this is closer to the Scotland than Croatia Harry Kane rather than the Czech Republic Harry Kane. And there was that moment after about 10 minutes into the second half where he went up for a header with uh, Mats Hummels, lost it, f- collapsed on the ground, looked like kind of limped off. And everybody thought he was going to come off. And frankly, that that was the right thing to do. Uh, people thought, well, you know, maybe we can get a bit of Rashford on, a bit of pace in behind, change the dynamic a bit because it's not working with Kane. And of course, at the end of the first half, he had that moment where the ball kind of luckily bounced to him. He tried to take a touch, take it past Neuer and put it in. And then his touch was a bit too heavy and then Hummels tackled the ball away from him. So it, it, it wasn't, you know, for the first hour, it was pretty bad. But he Southgate kept his faith in him. Kane kept on plugging away. I did think he got a bit better as it went on. Was involved in Sterling's goal and then, of course, scored that goal for himself at the end. And uh, I, I did think his second half performance did generally improve. I thought he did that thing that he does when he's not quite at his physical physically sharpest which is dropping a bit deeper trying to get more touches on the ball trying to get more involved in the build-up play and that did work I guess the big question really now for England is this will the fact that Kane scored this goal last night give him enough of a boost that he plays better in the remaining games depending on how many there are even though he's clearly not at 100% I mean anybody who's watched Kane so far knows that he's not at 100% but I'm just hoping 
that the uh, he'll get enough energy, confidence, belief, whatever you want to say, from having scored that goal, having broken his duck at this tournament, uh, that it will somehow kind of push him on to to do better in the remaining games. Because um, if England are to go all the way, then I think they probably need a slightly sharper sharper cane than the cane that we've had so far. But Jack, does he ever play well for England in terms of the more complete player we see playing for Tottenham? For England, off the top of my head, and especially at the 2018 World Cup where he won the Golden Boot, he just scores goals. And in this tournament, we haven't seemed to feed him the sort of service to do that. He missed a couple of chances, but really it was... <laughs> that, that Germany goal was textbook came for England I was concerned when he missed that chance in the first half that's when I start to think is Kane really off here but in terms of his overall performance and and somebody pointed this out as soon as that goal went in that's what you have that's what happens when you feed Kane and he said after the match um as a striker it's just on to the next one on to the next one like I don't think like mentally he's any different. I think what we're seeing is a cane that we tend to see for England, not a spectacular player, but whether they're going all the way or whether they're going out, they're doing it with Kane, captain, front and centre. They didn't even name a like-for-like replacement on the bench. Dominic Calvert-Lewin was left out of the squad entirely. So whether Kane is hitting his straps or not, he will score goals given the opportunities. England's job is to service him and they're going through or out with him at the helm, really. Yeah, I think that's a good point about Kane's overall performances. That we haven't... The one that stands out is, for example, the famous 3-2 win against Spain and Seville in October 2018. That was a sort of Spurs-type Kane performance for England. But the 2018 World Cup, David's right, you know, most of his goals were pen- penalties. The Tunisia winner was very close range, kind of second ball from a corner. There was the deflected one off his heel against Panama from Ruben Loftus-Cheek shot. So it's not really been the same kind of cane that dominates games that we have traditionally seen for England in tournaments. And I don't think that's necessarily a problem, although you're right that this the the goal that he scored yesterday was probably the best chance that England had created for him all tournament. Obviously, it's difficult in tournament football, given how teams defend, to, to create chances of that quality. If England, if England can continue to get balls into the box for Kane for him to head in like that, then... I've got no doubt that he will score more goals, but we do have to get used to the fact that he just doesn't seem to be operating at quite 100% physical sharpness at the moment. And there's plenty of reasons for that. You know, it's been in a... Kane, like everyone, has played basically flat-out football for more than a year now. It's more than a year since the Premier League resumed. In June 2020, Kane has played almost every game over that period for club and country. Um, and he's had a very busy end of the season, even having had that ankle injury in April, which he then quickly came back from the Carabao Cup final. So it's you know like a lot of players, he's got every reason to be a little bit jaded. He says that he's not, but uh, yeah, if England can continue to create more chances for him uh, on Saturday and beyond, then hopefully he will score some more goals. David, just touching on that Calvert Lewin thing. Obviously, it was the Athletic that broke that story yesterday that he wasn't going to be in the match day squad. How much of a surprise was that to you? Because I think everyone perceived him as being the backup striker for Harry Kane, but it does kind of feel like Rashford is is the number two striker in this squad now. Yeah, I was taken aback. I, I don't think we'd normally have done a story on um, somebody not making the match day squad, not making the bench. And we haven't until this point, even when we've heard about players who haven't. But with this, it was almost like for such a big game. And he's your only, wouldn't quite say like for like, but front man, top 
up top, right in the middle uh, for England. And he also, when he, I mean, he's got a young England career and I know it's something that he's desperate to improve upon international sort of football is at the core of his thinking and might be interesting to see in the coming years whether he can fulfill that with Everton or whether he feels he needs to move to one of the so-called you know top six clubs he, he was linked very heavily recently with, with Arsenal and and other clubs previously Manchester United etc because um, we from what we've seen of Calvert-Lewin it seems he can go on to a, a top level in in that young England career he's made an impact in in the Jack was it the World Cup qualifiers or some of the friendlies I, I was really impressed by what he did you know goal scoring the presence his leap his his aerial prowess which is going to be a key thing for England with, with still their set pieces improving but not producing the goods yet in the tournament and as an option on an expanded bench with five substitutes, it's almost like, why not? There, there are certain members of that team uh, squad bench that you would have immediately said would not have got on the pitch yesterday. But seems like Southgate's doing a bit of a rotation thing to make sure one or two players aren't left out in consecutive games. Or, or I mean, Ben White was, but he very much was a, a periphery member of this squad. So with Calvert-Lewin, yeah, surprise there. Marcus Rashford, of course, you know, he's proven at club level he's got a he, he's got a good international appearance and goal scoring record but just not at the major tournaments and he tends to play more to the side so I mean I, I don't really understand the rationale and I think most of us had hearts in mouths when Kane went down with that knee problem and we immediately thought well this is the moment that Calvert-Lewin or, or a striker should should be used Gareth Southgate didn't decide to bring Ollie Watkins into the squad Patrick Bamford didn't even get that close by the looks of it so you would imagine he would vary things up with it with a Rashford you know keeping Sterling up high Sterling's played a more central role for Manchester City at times and, and going with some of those more creative players but um yeah, I would imagine that Calvert-Lewin may come back into the reckoning for the Ukraine game. That said, he hasn't featured at all really in the tournament, very limited role. So um, it's clearly uh, Kane or bust. And, and if he's not there, then, then they maybe rejig things. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The England Show from The Athletic. Keep up to date with all of our Euro 2020 podcasts and writing by following us at The Athletic UK. Jack, we've got a question here from Bloopy. It says, why is Gareth Southgate so dreamy? And I'm going to throw something in there about the latest on Gareth Southgate's new contract. So dreamy? Uh, That's what the question yeah, is. I'm just reading well, what's in front of me. Yeah, I think like a lot of people, I have um, huge admiration for Southgate as a man. I think he, I think he's a, 
just a genuinely really good and authentic person who has a very strong moral compass and wants the right things for English football and the England football team. I guess the, the question really coming into this tournament had been, well, yeah, we know he's a nice bloke, but is he a good coach? And I think yesterday was the first time really that we've got a, a what felt like a kind of positive, comprehensive answer to that question. Because, you know, in the past with Southgate, people always said, yeah, but they, we got a nice draw in 2018 and we didn't beat anyone good. We went out to the first good team that we played to and all the goals were set pieces and all that kind of stuff. That's been around the sort of Southgate discourse for the last five years. Whereas th- this is one of the things that's so important and so gratifying about yesterday's win is that this is the first time that people can say, well, hold on a second. We beat a proper, t- we beat a proper team full of world-class players we were much better than them. It was a brilliant tactical plan, and we didn't even. It wasn't even relying on set pieces. Not that there's anything wrong with scoring goals and set pieces, I should say. So, in that sense, I feel like yesterday was a moment where the people's expectations of Southgate as a coach started to rise to the level of people's admiration for Southgate as a man, um, which was why it was so good. In terms of the contract, so Southgate was asked about this in the matchday minus one press conference beforehand he said look I really appreciate the fact that the FA support and back what I do that's great I have had that conversation with them however I don't think it's appropriate to talk about contracts during the course of a tournament you know Southgate is incredibly I mean this in a good way narrow-minded during a tournament the only thing he wants to focus on is the team the the tactics the preparation I'm sure that's a conversation Southgate will have with the FA after the Euros I think it is inconceivable at this point that he will not be the England manager for the World Cup uh, in 17 months time in Qatar I'm sure the FA would like to secure him for Euro 2024 should England qualify which will be in Germany in three years time um, so yeah it's uh, I'm sure that you know this is a story that we'll come back to after the World Cup but it's uh, I have to say personally as someone with a huge amount of admiration for Southgate I'm delighted that he got this huge vindication yesterday which is what I wrote about and hope that he carries on in the role for longer just picking up on that, Jack, like a bit of perspective is needed here as well. England will now go into the Ukraine match as favourites, really. Um, I guess they were against the Czech Republic, but it more takes my mind back to the Scotland game where we were expecting this tub-thumping victory and um, and it didn't happen. And, you know, Ukraine may present a, a similar dynamic. Let's not get too carried away with this with the Germany performance that there was a lot that wasn't quite right with it. And there were some very fine margins that decided that game, such as the, the Thomas Muller miss. So there, there is great goodwill behind him and England now. And he's so, so impressive the way he's gone about stuff, but um, it's by no means perfect. No, you're right. It's not perfect. And they could have, they could have not won yesterday. But um, generally, that was kind of the first big chance that England conceded in four games. You know, you're always going to need a bit of luck. But overall, it's impossible not to be struck by how defensively secure England have been at this Euros. Four clean sheets, one one big chance created. And yeah, Pickford had to make a few good saves. But I think that's true of almost all, all goalkeepers in all big games. Of course, you're right that we would be having a very different conversation if Thomas Muller had scored. But... You know, those are those. I suppose are just the fine margins of international of international tournament football. And the overall pa- the overall passage of the game went far closer to Gareth Southgate's game plan than I think anybody would have expected when Southgate 
announced that very unpopular but ultimately very successful team. Yeah, I think that, I think that's a great point. And I think overall, from, from my perspective in my lifetime, yes, things aren't perfect, but I think they're better than they've ever been pretty much in my lifetime. I think about the fact that we've actually won a couple of penalty shootouts under Gareth Southgate, if you include the UEFA Nations League as well. You look about yesterday knocking that, that big team out of a tournament. I think that's massive. And just what Gareth Southgate has done for the culture and the atmosphere, I think we're in a very, very good place. As I say, not perfect, but a very, very good place. Final question then to both of you. This one's from Elliot. Is it coming home? I almost don't want to say it, but is it coming home? Well, there's a good chance that England will win this tournament now because of the defence that Jack talks about and they've got the players to score goals against the biggest teams. I think it's realistic to expect England to make it to the final and then it's at Wembley, so the crowd will largely be on England's side. If we're just to look at it from a footballing perspective, um, I would say no, probably not. They'll get edged out by one of the superior nations in the final and that's trying to be sort of as impartial as possible. It would be incredibly upsetting if that happens but with perspective a a great achievement and progress that England made it to their first ever European final so in a nutshell I would love to say it's coming home and it's eminently possible like it really is possible but if push comes to shove and I was asked will it be I would say probably not sorry I feel both excited and scared by by what you've just said, David. Jack? It's already come home. The the meaning of it's coming home is not that England would win Euro 96. It's that major tournament football would be played at Wembley for the first time in 30 years and that the whole nation would rally around the England team and that this would represent a huge national communal experience that would bring people together. That that is the true Mm. meaning of it's coming home. And the hope, I think, before this Euros, when it was announced that Wembley would be hosting England games, was that football would come home again. We would have this kind of national communal experience sent with Wembley at its epicentre, which would bring bring the whole nation together behind the England team. And regardless of what happens in the next 10 or 11 days, and whether England get knocked out in the quarterfinals, the semifinals, the final, or even win the final... Football has already come home. We have we have had our big national event that we'd been waiting for desperately for so long, and that was what that was what we saw in the stands at Wembley yesterday, and in pubs and homes and gardens all around the country. Um, so yeah, I mean, whether or not England win it, I've got no idea, no idea. I mean, you'd have to say that England have got a good chance compared to the other teams, but the percentage likelihood of England winning it is, I don't know, certainly less than fifty at this point, because of the very good teams, not just in our half of the draw, but in the other half of the draw as well. But regardless of whether or not it's Harry Kane lifting the uh, European Championship trophy on the 11th of July, or the Italians, or Denmark, or Spain, or whoever else, football has already come home. I think it's a lovely way to end it, Jack. Football already coming home. I really, really like that. And thanks to everyone who sent questions in and sorry to those who, who we didn't get to, but we tried to get through as many as possible. And thanks to you two as well for joining me. I know you're both busy, busy boys. So thanks for coming on and having a chat with me the day after England knocked Germany out the Euros. Pleasure, Dan. Thank you. My pleasure. The Athletic.